This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Full Mutuality Podcast. A couple quick notes about this episode. Um, So first, we recorded this a pretty long time ago. So while you may have noticed an improvement in audio quality overall as our podcast has progressed, this one was recorded before Gail and I upgraded our mic setups. So it's not quite as clean as our recent episodes have been. I'm sorry about that. Although I guess I'm saying this more for myself than for you because... I've started to pride myself on how our podcast sounds recently, and uh, this one knocks my ego back a bit. Also, in this episode, we interview a friend of mine who went to my alma mater, Bob Jones University, which we covered in our last episode. But since we had recorded this conversation before episode 16, there are a few moments where we kind of sound like we're introducing the school for the first time on this podcast. Obviously, that's not the case unless you happen to be listening to this before you get to our conversation with Lance and Peter. Um, Anyway, without further ado, here's our conversation with Jen Allen Perry. Welcome to to the podcast. And uh, why don't you uh, start off by, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hey, thank you both. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah, I grew up in Greenville in a very conservative evangelical cult, although we didn't consider ourselves evangelical at the time. In retrospect, all of the, all of the harm, hallmarks of an evangelical group are there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born on the campus of Bob Jones University, which is the, the school that you went to, Nate. And, right. um, Wait, so like, is there I grew a hospital up there. on site or like, there was, really? there used to be Barge Memorial Hospital, there uh, used was a to full be. service hospital at the time. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it's not so I was born there. I, my sister and I were some of the last kids born there uh, before they stopped doing live births on oh, site. Oh, right, right, right. And for a while it became like, um, uh, like a, a nurse's station at a typical school or it wasn't a full hospital, but they had a, a pharmacy and a nurse you could see if you were feeling sick. Wow. Um, I remember that. And I don't know if they do that anymore or not. I think they're mainly using the old hospital for nursing classes, but not for medical practice. I see. So, Interesting. But yeah, I was Bob born Jones. there. <laughs> you went to elementary there and high school and university? Like All the everything. way through. Wow. Kindergarten. I went to nursery school, kindergarten, elementary, junior high, high school, and undergrad. Wow. So you were inundated. I mean... I was I was in it. I was a boge through and through. You don't get any more bogey than this. <laughs> well... um, I've, I so my perspective. I mean, we're going to reminisce a little bit. Um, sorry for anybody who's listening and is wondering what the hell this is all about. Um, we're just going to have a little bit of our uh, a, a little bit of catching up on um, our uh, time at this university. It's a bizarre one. So, so as the outsider, I will try and play the role of audiences who don't know about okay. Bob Jones. Yeah. And if there's stuff I don't understand, I'll just interject. <laughs> Yeah, because it's still, I mean, I grew up there. It yeah. feels like a normal childhood to me. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is it it's 
similar enough to my own. Like I went to, I, I grew up at a church that was a Bob Jones feeder church up here in New mm-hmm. Jersey. And um, the my elementary school all the way from, I, I started in K-5, but it was a, a, from K-4 all the way up through um, through year 12. We had a full um, fundamentalist, um, which is that branch of evangelicalism that you were alluding to. Um, it was an entire school devoted to teaching fundamentalist Christianity. Um, and the way that my church and my high school to a degree kind of acted about college was you either went to Bob Jones, Northland, or Pensacola. Those were sort of the Ooh. big three. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. my that my church was like, okay with um, for college. And then. um, So you picked the middle road, the one that was not the most conservative, but also not, you know, pushing the limits liberal. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) We looked at Pensacola with a little bit of side eye because uh, my church was not King James Version only. So. Okay. Um, so any anybody who thought about going to Pensacola, we were sort of like, really? They're, they're a little weird. They're the crazies, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and for those who don't know anything, when you hear King James only, it's it's like a sect of fundamentalism where they only use the King James. They're very strict on a lot of rules. And yeah, I mean, it's there's lots of shades, I guess, of fundamentalism. I didn't realize that. But <laughs> it's yeah. one of them. Women oh, yeah. got to wear like dresses and don't wear pants and... Right. Well, we actually had um, somebody on the podcast not too long ago who comes out of a, a completely different branch of the fundamentalist world. Um, she was from the the Bill Gothard camp, the IBLP. Oh. Yeah, that that okay. whole, you know, the Duggars, that that form of fundamentalism. Yeah. So I am familiar with that only through television. Right. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, I guess to kind of give everybody a little idea, like, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit. What were some of the restrictions or expectations that um, that you had in your uh, in your upbringing? I mean, they pretty much all came from school. Okay, my parents, my parents were way less culty than most of the parents of my peers in the cult. So I never even had a curfew. I just had to tell my parents when I left, when I expected to be home. Mm. And then if it looked like I was going to take longer, I had to call and get permission to stay out later. Okay. Um, my parents never micromanaged my homework. I did that myself and got the grades I wanted to get. Um, my dad actually very purposely avoided sharing with me and my sister what he thought about certain things, big mm. issues, in order to avoid coloring our thought process. He really wanted us to learn to think through things for ourselves. Um, Now, the way that worked out was, unfortunately, when presented with all the same facts, not every reasonable person will come to the same conclusion. So there were a few explosions in my teens and 20s when I was living my life in what I thought was a perfectly reasonable way. And it turns out my dad had strong feelings about what I was doing. Hmm. And I didn't know that until it was done. Oh, and that was, that was exciting. Okay. So do you care? Are, are you okay with elaborating a little bit on that? Mm-hmm. I dated someone for the first time in college. I was a late bloomer. Okay. Um, so 
I was hanging out at my boyfriend's house. He was a recent college grad, and I think I was a junior or something. And um, like he had roommates. His roommates were home. We were just hanging out on the couch in the living room, you know. And um, I had left my cell phone in the kitchen. This was when cell phones were in their early stages. And I had one of those slide phones with a QWERTY keyboard that was really, really cool at the time. Oh, yeah. I'd left it on the kitchen counter and we were sitting in the living room talking. And as happens when you're in your twenties with your first significant other, we talked really late with no sense of time whatsoever. So at like one in the morning, I looked at my phone and saw that I had several missed calls from my parents and texts from one or the other asking where I was. I was like, Oh shoot. They're worried. I need to go home right now. And I thought about calling them and I thought, no, there's no way they're still awake. They're early to bed people. I'll just, I won't wake them up. I'll just go home now. When I got home, my parents were both up, all the lights were on, and my parents were sitting in the living room on the couch looking very tired. And they expressed how worried they'd been. They were on the verge of calling the police because I hadn't Uh been answering. And I apologized. I, I explained what had happened. And, um... And my dad said, my dad was clearly very angry. There was an edge to his voice. And he said to me, you, something to the effect of, you know, was wrong with what you did. And I said, yeah, I should have kept my phone on me so that I would, I would notice when you called. And he said, no, the problem is that you are at a man's house past midnight, late at night. Think about that, Jen. Think about how that looks. The implication being, if you're at a man's house late at night, it's to have sex. And I I didn't want to clarify for my father that in this age, just saying this is my boyfriend implies to most people that we're having sex. (laughs) But it had not occurred to me that my father would have a problem with me being at my boyfriend's house late at night. He trusted me to be there during the day. Why would it be any different at a different time? Um, but, but that I think is a reflection of, uh, hypersexuality mm-hmm. in evangelical circles where we yeah. see sex everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and every form of intimacy is, is expected to be sexual. Yeah. Well, and, just yeah, to, to, sorry to, inter, to, to interject, but, um, you know, my, my experience with regards to the school itself, um, was, um, similar in their sort of obsession with, with mm. sex, right? Like they, to, to the degree that you weren't allowed to have any physical contact with I know. somebody of the opposite gender, not to mention that really how, messes up your brain, doesn't it? Right. Like, really? Mm. Yeah. Or not, mm. op- sorry, if you're, if you're thinking in terms of the binary, um, somebody who is a, you know, a, a man is not allowed to have physical contact with a woman and you're right. right it does, uh, it does mess with your brain. I think I still have emotional and psychological damage from being starved of physical contact. I didn't Mm. touch my friends. Mm. Like even like I wouldn't cuddle with girls because cuddling was sexual. Right. And girls don't have sex with each other. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't touch boys at all. So right. I just never got touched except for a passing hug once in a while, but usually a side hug because. Right. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, I I didn't grow up in fundamentalism, but just talking with one of my friends about why she didn't date any guys at church, she was like, you know, they make you feel very awkward in your own body and with your sexuality mm. to the point where 
everything becomes hypersexual in that environment. And she's like, you know, when I'd be at work or when I'd be around guys outside of church, there was never this weirdness. Like it was sexual. It felt like yeah. platonic. It felt normal. But as soon as I was in the church environment, it's like, oh, if you hug a guy, oh my gosh, I got to worry about how much contact I got to worry about all these different, you know, mm. things that, so like, it's funny because out of that fear of like, you know, oh my gosh, we don't want you to have sex and we got to, you know, keep you guys apart. It, it creates a sexual tension that doesn't need to be there or sexual, like it, it puts the focus on it constantly yeah. where it doesn't yeah. need to be there. Oh, I remember an interaction in high school. I was on the speech and debate team and at a tournament, I was talking to a friend of mine from another high school, a public high school. And during the conversation, I swung my hand up toward his shoulder. Like I was about to tap his shoulder but I stopped about two inches from his shoulder and then dropped my hand, which was, which was the comparable gesture that Bob Jones students had developed because you had to stay several inches away from each other. Mm-hmm. And he, and he looked at where my hand had been and was like, what was that? Do you not want to touch me? Are you, are you afraid to touch me because I'm Asian or because I'm not Christian? What, what was that? And then I had to, like, it dawned on me for the first time. Oh, this is weird. Yeah. And then I had to explain, no, at my school, we're not allowed to touch people of the opposite sex. That did not make him feel any better. He still <laughs> looked at me like I had insulted him greatly, which I have. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's weird anywhere else. It's weird. But that hyper focus, I think, leads to um, the the kinds of intense and invasive um, sexual expressions that we're seeing. And I... I I shouldn't even be calling it expressions, abuses, really, Mm. um, that we're seeing coming out of conservative Christian environments, um, I think in large part has to do with this culture of like fighting so hard to prevent any kind of sexual expression, any kind of healthy sexual expression or exploration um, at a time when people are supposed to be exploring and figuring themselves out and figuring out their interactions with each other. Um, So none of that actually happens. Our brains get rewired to see sex as this sort of titillating, like out of reach thing that you can never, ever have. Um, And then it starts to set some pretty bad habits because everything becomes um, shameful. So everything, every thought that we have, every interaction that we have that might be a little bit unusual, we have to keep hidden because God forbid somebody find out about it. And then we're in, we're in serious trouble. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and it's almost very impossible to avoid yeah. having any of those thoughts when that's all they're focusing on. Or it's a big chunk of what they focus on. It's like, if I would be like right now, guys, don't think about the pink elephant. Like, just don't right now, just right now, whatever you're thinking about, make sure, make sure that what you're thinking about right now in your head is not a pink. Don't imagine a pink elephant. Don't imagine a pink elephant. Think of something else, but it can't be. The more you're talking about it, what is everyone picturing in their head right now? If you want to try not to think about it, you're going to still be thinking about it because there's just, you start emphasizing something with such like a, you know, strong like without mm-hmm. without any reason behind it and then it, it's like this becomes very like you become more curious and becomes more like how do I not think about this it's like suggestive almost that you know you're constant like I, I remember I, at least in my evangelical environments there was this constant talk about how men just thought about sex non-stop all the time right oh yeah and mm-hmm. it like they just programmed that way and I I think yes. 
it probably encourages that sort of a thought because oh, of course it does. It's like, if you're not, then you're like, what's wrong with me as a dude? This is not predominant. Like this is not dominating all my thoughts. So I must, something must be a little bit off with me. You know, that's oh, this yeah. is how I'm supposed to think I'm supposed to be on this I track. Mean, that's what being a man is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we know, uh, controlled studies have demonstrated that children become what the adults the adult authorities in their life expect them to be. Mm-hmm. And, and other controlled studies of adults have demonstrated that adults fill the roles that they are given. Hmm. So like, if you expect someone to be an abuser, you are influence them, influencing them toward that enough. If you tell someone that they are driven by nearly uncontrollable desires or by impulses that may at times feel overwhelming, then of course they're going to experience that. Mm-hmm. Like you are training them to think that way. Mm-hmm. I am never surprised when I hear a story of sexual abuse or sexual assault where I grew up and I've heard a lot of them. Frankly, I am shocked that it didn't happen to everyone. Mm. to everyone there. I'm surprised that so many people made it out without having been physically sexually assaulted or having sexually assaulted someone else, Mm -hmm. because that's kind of what we were trained to be. We Mm. were groomed to, if we were female, we were groomed to be victims. If we were male, we were groomed to be um, violators of boundaries with no idea how to ask for consent. Mm. So I want to back up a little bit because I I had this thought in my mind, this question that kind of anytime that I enter um, that space of my old, you know, fundamentalist world, a question always pops up either um, in my own head or that somebody else asks, why should I care about these weird fringe ideas that <laughs> that exist in these in these cults? And uh, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit and and uh, we'll go to the history books just briefly. Um, and we'll talk about Bob Jones University um, as an institution and how it was founded, who founded it, et cetera. So um, very, very briefly, the, the foundation of fundamentalist Christianity um, was as kind of one of the reasons that it started was as a knee jerk reaction to um, what several conservative Christians viewed as um, Christianity getting soft or Christianity getting liberal. And um, because you had a lot of the, uh, the social ju- the abolitionist movement, for example, was um, started by the Congregationalist churches. So a number of churches who wanted nothing to do with abolishing slavery wanted to uh, create a bastion for um, themselves, which they felt it was their God-given right to own black people as slaves. So one of the reasons that they formed was that. And um, they wanted to have this, like, they wanted to distill all of their beliefs into the fundamentals, hence their name, fundamentalism. Now, fast forwarding... That fundamentalism is pretty much a white a white movement, in a sense. Like, there's pretty yes. much white people, and oh, yes. you're an exception, yes. and I'm not saying there aren't any non-white people but by and large those environments are white and yes there was only white people mm-hmm. in my school in my elementary school all six years there i only remember one black student i remember one black student a different black student in my middle school my junior high mm-hmm. in high school there are a bunch of korean kids who came over as dorm students but there was there was never a lot of diversity right 
Right. Was, I felt the same when yeah. I was there. There were maybe three or four black people that I remember in my um, in my class. I was class of 07. Um, and there was one other Japanese guy and a whole bunch of Korean uh, Korean people. But they're all sent over because Korea um, is, is a pretty Christian country. Uh, nation mm. and they like to okay. send over a lot of their uh young people to christian colleges in in the u.s to learn um american christianity but the so the reason that i say this is important for all of us to pay attention to is um a lot of a a lot of the tenets of fundamentalism have found their way into the political arena in the u.s okay. um also, um, fundamentalism is the foundation for uh, the modern evangelical movement. Um, evangelicalism was actually a response to fundamentalism in that they wanted to hold to those particular beliefs. They felt like the doctrines of fundamentalism were good, but they didn't like how separatist fundamentalists were. They wanted to, they felt, they took very, very um, seriously the Great Commission in the, the book of Matthew where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they felt like we needed to go into all the world. I think um, the apostle Paul wrote something like, you know, uh, uh, I become all things to all men that I may reach some. Right. So, mm -hmm. so the, the reaction to fundamentalism was then the, what, what was at the time called neo evangelicalism. It's then morphed into evangelicalism, um, which was kind of started by Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was actually a personal friend of Bob Jones. He attended Bob Jones University back in the day. Uh, and then they had a falling out. And then it became such a person. It was like a personal vendetta that they had against uh, against each other, particularly on, on the side of Bob Jones, because he was so jealous of Billy Graham's popularity that he um, that this whole doctrine of biblical separation actually came into into existence because Bob Jones didn't want anybody, any of his students to be following Billy Graham or to think that Billy Graham was. I remember growing up being taught my pastor said that Billy Graham was not saved, that he was not truly a Christian. Mm -hmm. And that's where where a lot of that comes from. So uh, why is all this important? Going back to all of this, um, one out of every four Americans identifies as an evangelical Christian. Evangelicals belief system is founded in fundamentalist Christianity. And Bob Jones University is sort of the hub of um, all fundamentalist Christian activity. So I just wanted to give that like overview so that people were aware and like just to get a sense for why this conversation, uh, why we're having this conversation and why we think it's important. Those political factions you mentioned, the political influences of fundamentalism and evangelicalism, they were they were pro-segregation is what they were. Mm -hmm. um, and anti-civil rights. Yes. Now, those same groups, the children and grandchildren of the people who argued that Christianity required keeping the races separate, are using the same arguments and similar passages in the Bible to argue that the genders should be kept mm -hmm. separate along binary lines and that gay people shouldn't exist, right. essentially. Just like this was important in the 60s for mm -hmm. human rights, it is important now. If we're going to advocate for human rights, we are going to have to combat people coming from this mindset, or I should say ideas coming from this mindset. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And that kind of leads me to um, to a question that I think might um, get get us down this road a little bit. So, at what 
point was there was there like a catalyst moment or idea or something that sort of turned you away from these ideologies what did that look like and where are you now in relationship to um beliefs of your uh, of your background no there was no single moment where i made a hard and fast decision or a sudden about face it was very much a gradual process and i was resistant the entire way mm. I did not want to change my mind. I mean, who does really? Right. Um, whoever wants to change their mind. But um, there were several moments that caused me to to open my mind to the possibility that I might be wrong about one thing. And the way that that started is usually disappointing to my conservative friends because it was not an outside influence that I felt mm. fell under. The way that I started deconstructing, to use the current buzzword, the way I started the process of changing my mind about who God is and what Jesus meant, is that I read the Bible, which I'd been doing my whole life, but I'd been doing it in little tiny chunks under the strict guidance of an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I... Um, certain ways of interpreting and looking at mm-hmm. it, right? Right. Well, in my 20s, I, I went out into the professional world and I was working one or two jobs at a time. And my Bible reading, my devotions, as we called them, had just fallen by the wayside. I just, I didn't think to make time. And so at least two years had gone by that I had not read the Bible for myself. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I should start that back up because that's what Christians do. They read the Bible every day. And I decided that I wanted to read the Bible in large chunks rather than in short chunks. So instead of a chapter a day, I was going to read a book a day or for the really big books like uh, First and Second Kings and the Psalms, I'd read more like 10 to 15 chapters at a sitting. And the reason for that was that I have always been a concept person. I'm really good at grasping concepts quickly. I am not a memorizer. And although I was very familiar with most of scripture, um, I would, I would recognize passes, passages quickly. I was really bad at remembering which book they were from, let alone which chapter. So I was no good at proof texting, like none whatsoever. Mm. I could quote a section, but I couldn't tell you where it came from. And I wanted to work on that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to step back. I took speed reading in college. I'm going to do a bird's eye view of this to give myself a framework of the big picture, the structure of these books to hang all these details on that I'm familiar with. That's what I was hoping to get out of it. It went very differently from how I had expected. There were two things I noticed. And the first one was most of what I'd been taught, the Bible clearly says it doesn't say at all. In fact, in a lot of those cases, if you read the passage in context, the author seems to mean the opposite of what I was taught. Right. Well, damn, that really upsets the apple cart, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And the second thing I noticed is that most of the Bible is delivered in a way that doesn't seem to be designed to be prescriptive. It's descriptive or poetic. Right. Right. The few passages that are prescriptive are written to a specific audience, usually in response to, to specific questions, which we don't know. Mm-hmm. How universal are they? So I'm saying it, a descriptive passage tells us what happened. A prescriptive passage tells us or someone 
what to do or what not to do or mm-hmm. how to live. And even when we uh, when we pull out just the prescriptive passages, amongst those, there are a lot. Those, we have to decide whether they are universal or um, specific to a time, place, or people. Just reading passages at face value, most of the prescriptive passages appear to be specific, not universal. Yeah. Because they are worded in a way that, that says, you, this person, I'm talking to you, you need to do this. You really have to have a reason to take a command that's given to one person and tell someone else that they have to follow it too. <laughs> when you're looking at the whole Bible as if, and I think this is a way that evangelicals and fundamentalists tend to use the Bible is it's meant to tell us what to do now. So <clears throat> they're looking for, you know, what might be prescriptive for someone else and trying to a- apply yeah. it to now. Like there's not a sense of historical reading <laughs> of context reading, <laughs> like cherry pick this. And how do I make you do what it's telling them to do so i kind of sorry just real quick it's just it's so relatable um that that my own my own like faith deconstruction was the the same kind of thing um i was given tools at you know in my churches uh to read the bible and then i read the bible and somehow and i took those tools that they gave me and i put them to use like like reading greek and started recognizing hey this none of this adds up (laughs) at all yeah yeah i mean at one point i i set out to do a study on marriage in the bible because i had been exposed to past cultures where marriage was defined very differently and conducted very differently like the way they determined whether or not someone was married was um very different from signing a contract or doing a ceremony in a church today Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I want to strip this down to the bare bones. Like, what is the minimum required to be married according to the Bible? And so I created a spreadsheet and I was, I was, I started listing out every occurrence of the Greek or Hebrew word for marriage or, or husband or wife or marry. Like I had a whole bunch of them and I I started listing all of them. And, um, the results were very disappointing. I gave up on it very early on. Because what I noticed, similar to what I I noticed in my read through, was that this is not a how to manual Mm -hmm. with clearly defined terms. There's no to do list. It actually reads much more like a history of coaching where God interacts with his students, with humans, and he doesn't tell them this is this is what you will ultimately become. Here's. Here's everything you need to be if in a perfect world. Instead, he tells them, this is what you should work on right now. And what he tells one group of people to work on is very different from what he tells a later group of people to work on. This is kind of a good place to segue a little bit as well, since your study was centered on marriage. Um, how then, as as we kind of move forward, since um, in, in the the conservative Christian world, you see this thread of um, marriage going hand in hand with sexuality and you cannot have Mm -hmm. one without the other. So what then does that journey for you look like as you start to reevaluate some of these things? Yeah, my thinking now is very different from how it was 10 years ago. And my behavior is only just now beginning to align with my beliefs. The process for me over the last decade or decade and a half has been 
to begrudgingly admit that, okay, there might be other valid ways of applying this passage or interpreting this command. And only later did it, did I actually allow myself to say, well, maybe I should be applying this command differently. Yeah. I, for most of my twenties, I, I was open to non-conservative lifestyles, if you want to call it that. Like I had concluded that it is perfectly reasonable to be a Christian, read the Bible and trust it as the word of God and conclude that it's fine to have sex with anyone you want to, as long as you observe consent, as mm-hmm. long as you respect the other person as a human being and, and respect their boundaries. You don't exploit them. But I, I didn't want to live that way. You know, I was like, well, but I want to live a conservative life. I want to save sex for marriage. I, or, or at least a very committed long-term relationship, even if we don't sign a marriage contract. And it was only, it was, it was later than that, that I, I realized that I'm really not cut out for monogamy. I will probably never be monogamous again. I will definitely not get married as long as I live in South Carolina under South Carolina's current divorce laws, Mm. which effectively make divorce a privilege for the uh, well-funded or well-connected. Like, I'm not going to participate in that. So that's very different from what I had always expected my life to be. Mm. And it's, uh, it's been uncomfortable to get used to that idea. Hmm. that I'm, I'm living in a way that I didn't expect. Hmm. Well, also, if you grow up in a a Christian fundamentalist sort of environment, you don't ever have, I mean, I don't even, I'm not in that environment anymore. And I still find it very difficult to see represented in media, non-monogamy as a, as a concept. Actually, it's kind of Hmm. interesting that in the Bible, there's a lot of that. And I remember reading that as a kid going, but, you know, it wasn't polyamory. It was polygamy, which is very, no, very yes. different. The topic yes. of consent it's is non-consensual, right. non-monogamy. Right. Yep. And, it's, and it's not women with a bunch of husbands. It's a guy owning a bunch of women, right? That there's right. Yes. ownership when it came to marriage. Women as livestock. That's right. what it is. Right. Yeah. When people talk about biblical marriage. It's, it's very interesting. Like you said, if you put out a spreadsheet and start looking at what the Bible has to say, it's not what we're told when people are like... <laughs> You know, I saw. I well, saw we're clearly not supposed to do that. <laughs> I saw a meme, and it was like Biblical Times card store, and he's looking at some cards mm. that say concubine, and some that say wives, and like, and it's it's like kind of a throwback to that. Yes, know, like I saw seen. that. <laughs> yeah. But and the like, third category was unholy union partner, <laughs> <laughs> which is is great. But it's interesting that you know. In conservative belief systems, the idea of not being monogamous is so incredibly taboo when the Bible is full of non-monogamy and nobody really goes like, David, terrible. You know, it's like, no, man after God's own heart. You know, Abraham, like, oh. I mean, tell me, help me out here, but I can only think of one passage that even mentions monogamy. And even there, it's not all that clear. The passage about deacons, where a deacon should be a man oh, of yeah, only yeah. one right. woman. Right. For sure. You and even that gets interpreted different ways. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's, it's interesting. I, I guess yeah. I, one of the curious things that I, so it makes sense to me that it would have been very hard for you to imagine anything outside of monogamy uh, growing up, you know, in an environment that would never present anything except that as, except if you read the Bible, then you see something different and then it's, we got to do mental gymnastics, right. To like, to bend it. But I'm wondering, what was it for you where you came to the conclusion of 
you know, I could believe the Bible is the word of God and all this, and I could still live as long as consent is the rule. Where did you come to that through the Bible? It was, through your- it was that experience reading through the Bible and seeing that it doesn't prescribe how sexual relationships should work. It really doesn't. Most of its mentions of sex are descriptive and um, pretty clearly negative. Right. Um, at least the people, at least one person involved in this sexual encounter is harming someone else in the sexual encounter. Um, Did you find anything in, in the prescriptive that, that banged you towards consent? Like, was there any passage in scripture where you're like, here's the Bible promoting consent as a concept? Um, okay. So one, one passage that was particularly shocking to me. Um, was one night I sat down and I read Ephesians and Philippians in one go. And that passage that always gets quoted at weddings, I was, oh, by the way, I was a complementarian when I sat down for this and I left an egalitarian in one sitting, Mm. but I read Ephesians and Philippians and on that passage, uh, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. I read the whole section and the description that Paul gives of what he means by those phrases. Mm-hmm. And he says, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord and husbands love your wives um, as Christ loved the church. And he goes on to talk about self-sacrifice and submission and um, putting someone else's needs above your own. And in practice, those two things He's telling husbands and wives to do the same thing for each other, right? to treat each other the same way. He's making them equals in their relationship. Um, And even without considering the cultural context where women were just one level up from slaves who were slightly above livestock, but not much. Um, Even without considering the radical shift that that must have been for Greek and Roman and Jewish uh, readers to look at that and hear, oh, the wife is supposed to be treated just as well as the husband in the relationship. Just ignoring that, just reading it at face value with no concept of the of the upset in patriarchy. You still have to walk away from it thinking that in practice, these two things look the same. Mm-hmm. So Paul is advocating for equality in marital relationships. Yeah. And that, that made me walk away and think, huh, so maybe, yeah, maybe men and women are supposed to be equal. Yeah. What a concept. I know. (laughs) We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences will boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. 
I want to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that we have a fantastic new way for you to support the podcast. If you like what you hear from our show and want to partner with us, head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to donate. As a partner, you'll get exclusive content, access to occasional live recording events, and more for as little as $5 a month. Thank you already for your support of what we're creating. And now, back to the conversation. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that your um your your practice of of using that as sort of your framework for and and like again uh we're kind of talking about your your own personal journey um and that was like one step along the way um but aside from a passage like that at least in my experience consent is really not uh, a talking point in the Bible. Um, no, I was going to go there. That's, I mean, that's really sort of where I was leading in because I was like, right. I don't remember the consent yeah. past. Like what you mentioned about Ephesians, I'll go back to consent, but I wanted to say like, for me, that was one of those eye-opening. I also used to be complementary in my thinking and, and, and changed. And for those who don't know those terms, we've defined it in past podcast episodes, but it's this idea of men and women having defined roles. Guys do this, girls do this versus egalitarian, which is sort of you're equal and it's not a separate but equal kind of thing like segregation. It's you're equal. <laughs> that's how that's how equality actually works. So um, and when I started actually for me, one of those things that started undoing it is when I studied Ephesians and I found out that that passage specifically, if you want to go with the women are told to submit in the original language, that word is net the what it's submit unto one another as unto the Lord is the first verse. And then when it gets to the wives, it's, it doesn't, it actually says in the original language and wives unto your husbands as, as to the Lord. And there's no verb in there saying what mm -hmm. so people mm -hmm. take the pullet from the previous one instead of, and what's interesting is the chapters were only inserted way later into Bible right. writing and the verses so this, as, as well. Right. So it wasn't like this was referring to this passage. No, those passages were inserted later on. It was more likely the bigger context of what the verbiage mm -hmm. was about, which yeah. was about, you know, it being submitted, like having the spirit of the Lord in your interactions with each other, I think was a bigger context of that whole passage. Just, you know, making it yeah. right. Like if you could keep reading earlier, you start seeing the overall uh, when you start zooming out, like you were saying earlier, it gives you, mm. so to me, it was a shock. I think the first time when I started recognizing and I pulled out one of my translations had the word submit in italics. Most of them don't even do that, but it was like a more honest translation. Cause then at the bottom, yes. it noted right. that this has actually been an addition to make sense of the way the Greek writing is, which is not, it doesn't always have the verbiage in it. So we're, mm -hmm. you're inserting what you think the topic is into it in order to make sense of it. Um, in English, it wouldn't have made sense if it was written like word for word or, you know, Right. Um, which is how a lot of the Bible is written down, which is a lot of interpretation, which a lot of people leave out of how much um, bending can be done with people who have a certain perspective on the world when they want to put out a translation, how much yeah. that goes through our history in Christianity. Um, but so the egalitarian thing definitely was that passage for me and realizing what people inserted this word in to make it specific <laughs> submission for women. I was like, how dare they? Because I was always told you never take anything out of the Bible. You never insert anything or God will pull you out of the book of life or he will insert into <laughs> your life every plague written in right. it. That's what it says in Revelation. So I was like, right, oh, yeah. do this. So yeah. I was just like, how dare they? I can't believe that they, people who told me this my whole life that I can't add or subtract from it are actually like tampering with the word of God. And that's the reality of the whole, how the Bible is written is that there is a lot of tampering that goes down. There's a lot of guessing. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of seriousness. I don't want to say people who go into this profession are, you know, being flimsy, but 
you know, it's, it's not as solid as people want to think when they're going authority of God, yeah. you know, it's the word yeah. of God, but going back to consent, sorry, I had to rabbit trail off because that Ephesians passage to me, when we talk about egalitarianism yeah. was eye opening, but when yeah. it comes to the topic of consent, I grew up my whole life in church, never hearing that concept talked about. No. And mm-hmm. whenever Same. David yep. and Bathsheba was brought up, it was always right. adultery. It was never rape as a topic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and they always talked about it like they cheated. And I and it 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 was so I realized the programming in that for me by ignoring what consent is, by ignoring that Bathsheba had no consent, by ignoring mm-hmm. that she was taken against her will and raped. That is what that is. It's not a consent. Um, the fact that that topic was never broached, that they would read that story and skip over that this is rape and non-consent really was a part of my religious framing in terms of how mm. relationships, even within my church context, um, were set up to not even be able to recognize what consent looked like. Yeah. And to not be able to acknowledge what rape actually was, was a part of my church yeah. context. I don't know if you guys yeah. had similar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the uh, boundaries we had around sex were about under what circumstances you can have sex or not have sex. Right. And there was no, like when you should say no and when you should say yes, but there was nothing about what to do if someone says no, when you think mm-hmm. they should say yes. Well, if you're mm-hmm. a woman, the teaching was if they, if they say yes and you can't say no, <laughs> what sort of the teaching? Like I remember yeah. a lot of yeah. stuff like women, if you don't want your guys to cheat or look at porn, you need to be having sex with them often, even if you don't feel yep. like it, even if you're not in the mood. And yes. I, I remember somebody giving me this advice one time of like, you know, whether or not, I mean, I've had it from different perspectives with the same message of like, even if you don't want it, you know, this is what's going to draw you too closer or um, actually had a marriage counselor pull out the Bible and say, you know, uh, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. When my, oh my God, when my, when my ex was literally saying, am I, it, is she allowed to say no to me? Like this was <gasps> this question. We were separated. Right. And, oh my God. <laughs> and, what the fuck people? Right, I don't recommend <laughs> Christian counseling. I will, I will nope. add this in. I'm no. not a fan. I don't think a lot of, and yeah, I won't go too far down that road, but I will say that you know, I've had it in many directions. People come at me, even, you know, it's more subtly, like not, you know, you have to have sex if they want to, um, because the Bible says your body is not your own. But even just, well, you know, this is how you you make a man feel loved and cared for is you have sex. Like that's how he and and in my head going, wait a second, if I'm not in the mood and I'm just doing this to hold on to that person, you're teaching me that how I feel internally doesn't matter. You're teaching mm-hmm. me that my needs, my desires, my my disinterest is unimportant to this whole conversation. Like all of, I mean, I would never want someone, like if Nate, you know, bought me flowers and I said, oh, babe, you got me flowers. Why she do? Because because I have to get you flowers. This is what I'm supposed to do for you. <laughs> like, I'd be like, take it back. I don't want your flowers. Yeah. Your <laughs> stupid flowers. Like, really? But like that we're training women that it's okay if you have sex and you don't enjoy it. That's not the point of sex. Is a terrible message that yeah. a lot of us have been programmed to to internalize and to be like, yeah. doesn't matter if it's, it's out of pleasure or enjoyment. It's... uh this is your duty as a wife. Yeah. And the flip side of that, I think is like growing up, leadership was very cautious not to teach me or other women how to say yes, because they didn't want us to say yes. Don't say yes. 
then you get married and say yes all the time. But mm. for now, don't say yes. Um, but when you remove, when you take away from someone the tools to say yes, you also take away the tools to say no. Yeah. So that's, I think, what made me angriest, makes me angriest about my upbringing is that I was stripped of the tools I needed to protect myself. And I won't go into detail here, but there were a couple experiences in my 20s where I didn't know how to say no. I wanted to say no, but good girls are naive and you can't say no to what you're unwilling to name. Um, so because I couldn't name it, I couldn't admit that I knew what was going on. Cause that would mean that I had a dirty mind. I couldn't say no. I just had to look for a way to slither out of the, the circumstance I had found myself in, which apparently was probably my fault. Like, why were you even there in the first place? Yada, yada, yada. A, that is a, a topic I think is, is also worth exploring too, is in these environments, there's a lot of talk about modesty, a lot of talk about helping men not to stumble. and it's taken me a very long time to understand how vile that is as a concept. I remember talking about modesty to other people. I remember preaching modesty to other people. I remember thinking it was a woman's responsibility in part to help a dude out, you know, to make oh, yeah. sure he didn't think the wrong thing. And I look back at that and I'm like, that's absolutely awful. Like I look at Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin, tell a woman to put some more clothes on to help you out. Yeah. not at all his, his commentary it was gouge your eye out it was like you were fully absolutely 100 percent not only responsible for yourself but if you're being pro that problematic then you need to take drastic action yourself to stop yourself from this crap like yeah. it's like it's mm -hmm. so it's so extreme the way and you know yeah. i love people with like you need to take the bible literally you need to take it seriously Tell me how many guys are walking around without eyeballs out there in their churches. It's it's just not happening, you know, but yet they'll take a verse that says, you know, uh, dress with pure modesty and won't even look at the context of what they were talking about with the, the, the modesty being about fashion, being about uh, flashing your wealth was actually the context of mm -hmm. that passage. Mm -hmm. But it's like they'll focus in on that word modesty and they'll be like, see, we to, the Bible says that. But it's like he also says gouge your eyes out, though. And for some reason nobody's nobody's gouging out their eyes but mm -hmm. when it comes to the women we're putting stuff in here some extra stuff to make sure that they're and i and it, to, to kind of zoom out of that what it creates inside of women is this if he thinks of me the wrong way i have a part to play in this yeah it, it, i have a role he must i must have done something that caused him to think i wanted this or that gave him the wrong impression um yeah i know when we were talking with uh you mentioned a previous guest in fundamentalism was ati they would use an expression of uh, did they use this as bob jones defrauding someone i don't know different different fundamentalism has different words of basically like you're 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 presenting yourself a certain way and you're causing a guy to think he's entitled oh. from how you're acting oh. so they would call it defrauding a guy by like yeah. if you were smiled at them the wrong way like you're defrauding him because now he is imagining that you want xyz because you smiled at him the wrong way so i don't oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i think there's a lot of pressure on women inside of evangelical culture not even just fundamentalism to see themselves as responsible and to feel ashamed if a guy acts out inappropriately mm. on them mm -hmm. like they have done something to cause this situation yeah. which uh, I alluded, I mentioned earlier that women were groomed to be victims. And this is one way that they're groomed to be victims. Yeah. Because if I am responsible for someone raping me, 
but I'm not going to tell anyone about it because I'll be admitting to my own fault. I'll cover it up rather than go ask for help. And I think that's what happened with a lot of my peers. They were silent for years about sexual assault and rape because they thought it was their fault that it had happened to them. They don't. I think that's it. When you don't even teach consent, you don't even have a working definition for rape. So then rape becomes a back alley with a stranger grabbing you and throwing you against the wall. And it's not your nice boyfriend who's putting pressure on you. Um, it, all these other scenarios of someone who you trusted yeah. never factor into your head. A hundred percent. Yep. Yep. I remember reading a headline in the local newspaper sometime in my teen years. It said, um, I forget the stat, but X percent of rapists know their victims. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, that's crazy, because I couldn't fathom a scenario in which someone would rape someone they knew. It would have to be like maybe a friend from school, like you described, pulls somebody into a back alley, tricks them into getting back there, and then slams them up against the wall and has sex with them while they scream, no, please stop. Mm. But that was the only scenario I could envision that would count as rape. I couldn't imagine, like, if your boyfriend has sex with you well that's probably your fault because you flirted with him too much you stayed out past midnight (laughs) right you were at his house too late of course you thought he would have sex with you what else is he gonna think you walked into his home his bedroom (laughs) oh my god come on i'm thinking another statistic i heard which i was mind-blowing for me in terms of how women are always pressured with what they wear uh you know as if their their job is to govern a guy's thoughts as if guys cannot think things if you're wearing you know, if you're covered head to toe. I mean, in some instances, anyway, I won't even go down that rabbit shell. But it was interesting. They had a museum of what women were wearing. You could probably Google this. Maybe I'll look at for it for the show notes. What women mm. were wearing when they were raped. And it was amazing mm. how many of it were pajamas. Their house, they're in their house, right? It's people they knew. It was an uncle. It was a family member. It was a cousin. Yeah. It was a friend. Somebody they trusted. Um, most of the rapes happened under scenarios where people were wearing very ordinary things. Nothing productive, provocative or um, sexual in nature at all. And that's a myth that I grew up with was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. if you're going to be raped, it's because you're wearing something to encourage it. Then if that's the case, why are most rapes done while women are wearing very modest attire? Nothing revealing at all. Baggy clothes from neck to ankle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's the assumption that rape is about sex and not about power. That's another Mm -hmm. big myth that we all grew up with as well, which is like rape is about wanting sex. It's that sexual appetite out of control instead of examining power dynamics, which is not a part of evangelical thinking at all is what do power dynamics look like and how important is it? Who like, you know, if, if it's a teacher and a, a student, there's something off. If it's a pastor and someone, our counselor and someone under them, like this, this idea that some people are in positions where consent isn't even a possibility. Um, in this considered completely unethical in the secular world, but in the Christian world, you're not even taught about mm. how those dif- power differentials make consent impossible in certain situations. Mm-hmm. It takes yeah. consent off the table, right? If if you're if you lose your job, if you don't do what your boss says, then how how is that a consensual thing, right? right. Like right. And yeah. flirt with you and be really nice to you and say, oh, are you sure you don't want to date me? But like when you're scared, you can't feed your kids, you know, then what? Right. Like, how is that? 
Yeah. You know, how, how is- and another thing we haven't touched on yet is this, this modesty talk is all very binary. Mm-hmm. Like it's all about women versus men. Well, okay. If, if sexual purity, if avoiding sexual thoughts is so important and if gayness is so bad, then why are we not telling men and women to be modest in the locker room together? Right. Why is it fine for dudes to run around shirtless at sports ball games when there might be someone struggling with same sex attraction in the stands? (laughs) No. Yeah. And and for the record, um, we, we don't believe in that idea of struggling with same sex attraction. It's yeah. did you hear yeah. the sarcasm font in yes. the voice? Yeah. <laughs> we can see each other's yes. face so we can see yeah. the eyeballs getting all wide, but just in case you didn't detect it in the tone of voice, yeah, that is sarcasm. <laughs> that is the way that evangelical Christianity tries to detract from the fact that sec- homosexuality is an orientation. So mm-hmm. in order to avoid, and we should clarify that for anyone listening who doesn't know about that, that is a way to try and make it as if it's a personal choice, which mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I'm like, I, I'm straight. And <laughs> if I'm going to look at the way men behave in society as a whole and, and it being a choice to be gay or not, there's no way I'd be straight. Like there's just, this just it doesn't make any logical sense to me why I would ever choose to be like if this is a choice. I don't want to be attracted you know? to that. I, I'm just like guys as a whole have to step up their game. There's a problem going on here. Like there's a lot of issues happening. You know, women are have a lot of female friends, and it's so much so much easier. It's just overall the emotional intelligence is so much higher. The ability to get vulnerable is so much more there. There's so much more going on. That's great. Um, that guys, you know, have been socially programmed to not be able to do very well. Have been have been discouraged from even getting in touch with their own emotions. Oh, you don't want to be a sissy. You don't want to be a girl. Oh, you know, all this this talk that stunts men, actually. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And even that phrase in and of itself, don't want to be a girl, as if that's the worst thing. <laughs> wow. That, yeah. Like, uh, and can me. we add right? how patriarchal culture conditions men to hate women and then want to be with women mm. at the same time, mm. right? Ew, girl, worst thing in the world. You don't want to be a girl and this disrespect towards women. But then. You have but then to you have to get one. Girl. Yeah, you have to get one. And you've been taught to literally despise women. It's yeah, that's how I know being straight is not a choice. Because I'm like, all of that setup just would make me be like, if I could be attracted to women, I would have a lot easier of a street in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I did find a great guy. I love Nate. And he is he's fantastic. But it's rare. And when I look around, I mean... The, the dating wow. scene was a scary Your male scene listeners was... are going to be justly insulted by this episode. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's okay. It was skewing a little too heavily in the male direction. I was looking at the Spotify stats and I'm like, oh, I need to drive like, some why, why, why is our audience 51% male? What's going on here? Yeah, we need to trim that down when we start going a little too Joe Rogan. We're like, nope, if, if only men like this, this is a bad thing. This is how we know it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm I'm curious now, like we're we're starting to head in that direction of um, talking a little bit about uh, conservative Christians mentality with respect to um, the LGBTQ community um, and same sex attraction, queerness, transgender people. How then do you take that 
you know, you start heading down and I know some, some might hear this as like, Oh, you know, it's a slippery slope. Once you get rid of, you know, uh, one f- fundamental of the faith, then, you know, it's a free for all. And you just, you know, believe that having sex with the person of the same sex is fine. Um, but maybe we can draw a little bit more of a logical kind of rational thought process to why we might say not only is it okay, it should be celebrated and applauded um, when somebody comes out, when somebody expresses a gender identity that is not what they were assigned at birth, when uh, somebody shares that they um, are attracted to a gender that they, um, by society standards, should not ordinarily be attracted to. How do we make those steps away from this idea that um, anything that isn't, you know, straight man and straight woman together in marriage is bad and to to where we are now. Hmm. Well, um, the first thing I thought of as you were asking that question was an experience I had a few years ago when I still thought I was straight. Um, a friend of mine came out to me as pansexual and I didn't know what that meant. At first I was like, okay, what's the difference between pan and bi? Is he just, is he into group sex? But I didn't want to ask because, you know, I, I don't want to put the burden on him to educate me. So I go Googling things. I'm like, what does this mean? Oh, pansexual. And I, I shared the definition I had found with uh, a good friend of mine. I told my friend, uh, so I found out pansexual means that you are attracted to a person based on who they are and what they're like, not based on what their body is shaped like. So you don't care about their genitalia. You just care about um, the chemistry you two have as human beings. And that's the basis for your attraction. Um, but yeah, and I think that's when we, when we incorporate consent into our lives and from a Christian perspective, I think that's, that is the way that you show respect to someone is that you, the way that you love them and care for them is you practice consent. You seek to understand and then observe their boundaries and to help them understand themselves. That is how you love someone. And in that context, any sexual orientation can be celebrated. Someone doesn't have to be sexually attracted to me in order for me to celebrate their life. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to not be sexually attracted to me for me to celebrate their life. Yeah. I, I think what our society is learning to do is to move away from etiquette toward boundary setting. And that I think is something that Christians ought to be really, really good at. Because we have long been taught to give people a little more honor and kindness than society requires of us to do a little better. And right now we are doing way worse than the rest of society in terms of being kind to people. Yeah. And I I also want to take it in in this other direction because I've I've often had these kinds of questions or accusations hurled um, at me about um like you know you're you're straight why do you care um (laughs) and i'm like what why do i need to be part of a community in order to care about the needs of that community but also from from kind of another perspective um i think in terms of one of the one of the things that i've been doing over the last several years is sort of reframing my understanding of um christian faith and practice into and through this lens of of justice and liberation and when we look at um 
groups of people that have historically been um, cast off and marginalized and oppressed, um, often brutally, that their um, ability to assert themselves in society just for the sake of being allowed to take up some space, being allowed to see themselves in media, being allowed to talk about who they are, um, is an incredible power, incredibly powerful thing because the cisgender straight white man has been plastered across every possible um, position of power, influence, media, representation. So why is it such uh, an imposition to maybe for, I don't know, a few days out of the year, throw a pride flag up there and say, hey, not everybody looks like what we've been conditioned to see as normative, right? Mm. So that's kind of like the the thing that I uh, that I sort of latch on to um, in in those sorts of conver- conversations. And in days where I feel more Christian than than other days, one of the things that helps that kind of keeps me sort of connected to that faith is that idea of um, justice and liberation that mm. the that the wrongs that have been committed against um, queer people predominantly at the hands of religious people, that those wrongs will be righted. And that if you want to use the mythology of Christianity, that that's the message of Jesus, right? That, that if we follow Jesus, who has commanded us to go and spread good news, maybe good news in this scenario is that the oppression that you have been under for such a long time we're going to make that right. And instead of oppression, mm-hmm. we're going to celebrate you. Right. Um, and unfortunately now, because we live in a capitalistic society, um, major corporations are taking advantage and throwing pride flags out there while doing nothing to change the landscape for the queer, yeah. uh, for queer people. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah. mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation. I haven't even done diversity and inclusion training, but they have a pride flag around their logo. Right. <laughs> I think you hit the nail on your head when you said, why do I have to be a part of a marginalized community to care about what happens to them? And I think, I think that's like Christians are taught to care for the widow and the orphans. We're not taught widows take care of each other. Orphans take care of each other. It's Mm -hmm. all of you take care of the widows and orphans, like take care of the members in your society who are unable to get what they need on their own. Like if, as the saying goes, you can't, you can't offer somebody a hand up if you're in the pit with them. Like we, the, the LGBTQ community needs allies, just like the civil rights movement needed white people fighting alongside black civil rights leaders to make change happen. Um, you need people advocating from inside for what they need. And you also need people advocating from outside for, um, to make that feasible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. to offer the resources that marginalized exactly. communities just don't have because they're marginalized. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They do need, I think the the part of the, maybe the weakness is sometimes when we see ourselves as the one who's out pulling a person out of a pit, we can do the saviorism stuff as well. I oh, think yeah. there's probably an important note to be made that what you said, those in the, those communities need to be the ones leading the way, but they need the support mm-hmm. and the resources. I like that point you made of those outside because they're not marginalized and they have 
better access to that stuff. I think one of the mm-hmm. things that's dawned on me when it came to reframing pride, because I grew up being told, why are they so proud? Pride is bad. Pride is evil. Why is this need <laughs> to celebrate? I mean, do straight people walk around talking about how they're straight all the time? No, we just show it in every movie and TV show and every <laughs> right. show. Every we, we day is straight pride like, oh, day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Who's that little girl you're talking to, Johnny? Ooh, do you like her? You know, you have adults talking to their five-year-old about if they're in a romantic relationship yeah. with a little Don't girl. Don't even get me started about mononormativity. <laughs> All of our oh, language yeah. is still about couples and plus mm. ones. What about a plus three? Right. Or, like, come on. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Anyway, go on. But like, just even I think one of those things that helped me start understanding the value of pride um, and, and reframing that was realizing how many gay kids get kicked out of their homes by Christian families? How yeah. many gay kids get disowned? I started looking around and noticing in my youth group, there were a lot of gay kids who were suffering of severe depression, wanting to end their mm. lives and didn't come out to their family because they didn't know yeah. how that would be responded to of, of kids that were coming home with a boy to the dinner table uh, at a family gathering, because if they brought a girl, they wouldn't be invited um, if they were a girl. Mm. So there was a need to conform in order to be accepted in there was not an acceptance there was a rejection and people want to be like oh your sexuality doesn't define you but then how are you completely kicking someone out of your community because of their sexuality and pretending it doesn't define them when you're defining everything by their sexuality and so realizing how dangerous it is for for gay people in society still today i mean um that's still a reality that that gay mm. kids have and that trans kids have in terms of suicide rates because of the threats that they're under constantly um and the and the fear of rejection from their own parents and how psychologically yeah. damaging that is then yes we have absolutely everything to celebrate when someone comes out and tells us who they are when saying who they are poses such a risk to their survival and well-being and safety yeah. and security and and having a sense of family all of that can just be ripped away like a straight kid will never have Mm. to ask that question of if i tell my parents that i'm attracted to the opposite sex could i lose no there's nothing that follows in there in our thought process so yes we need to be happy and and be proud of people who can can come and say the truth about who they are when they're told constantly to be ashamed of who they are And that was a big reframe for me to realize pride exists as a response to Christians homophobia in part and probably in large part. (laughs) It's the way that we recover from shame is by learning to be proud about the parts of ourselves that we have always hidden and repressed. Um, Well, I've been doing a lot of that in the last year. I've been processing some trauma which has caused doors in my brain to just fly open whole parts of myself. I didn't know existed. It's also unlocked some physical issues. Like I've seen my physical health deteriorate and get better in alongside my, my mental health processing. Um, yeah. Like the, the coughing that you hear, and I hope you're not hearing the gum chewing. That's because of acid reflux that I've been dealing with, which seems to, but looking back over my history, my digestive issues seem to stem from sexual and religious trauma. So um, it's been fun to, I say fun, it's been fascinating and frustrating to watch those, those things develop side by side. Mm. Um, I do want to uh, give out, give a plug for local to the Greenville area. If you or someone, you know, is, um, 
is being rejected by family or kicked out of their home because of their sexuality their sexual orientation or gender identity, there are groups in Greenville that have the, the resources and the manpower and, uh, the and an eagerness to help you or or your friend or family member um pride link in greenville recently opened a queer wellness center near the haywood mall which offers uh medical uh, mental health therapy on site as well as basic living essentials like snacks and toiletries and cozy corners to hang out and feel safe and accepted um also, First Baptist of Greenville has provided a lot of help to people, especially teenagers and 20-somethings who've been kicked out of their parents' home after coming out. Um, and I know a lot of folks there would be happy to help someone find a place to live uh, uh, or even provide a place to live with an adult who will be affirming and encouraging and help someone get on their emotional feet again. Um, and Greenville, the upstate now has um, a queer chamber of commerce, oh, wow. which um, is a network of queer affirming, queer owned and ally businesses. And if you reach out to them, I know the leadership there would be happy to network for you and help you find people who have the resources to help with your specific situation. Mm. Um, and you're also welcome to find me on social media and send me a message. And I can, I'm happy to introduce you to people I know who can get you what you need. Well, thanks for sharing. I actually want to, I'm going to put all of those into the show notes so that people can, cool. um, can find that stuff easily, click the links, et cetera. Um, Jen, this has been a blast. Um, thank you so much, <laughs> you uh, for, for joining us. Yeah, we did cover a lot of ground. Um, this has been really exciting. Um, I, I kind of want to get, um, your thoughts on, we, we talked a lot about, um, you know, the, the things that we, might um see as as wrong with um our our upbringing and i don't i don't know at least from my perspective i don't know that there is much that i can glean in terms of what's right but perhaps as sort of a parting thought what are um some things that you might want to express to um uh to conservative christians of of your stripe um from yeah. from your upbringing what what are some things that you would like to share with them about what you think and who you are now um actually what i would like to express to people who are living in a conservative environment is something that i wish had been expressed to me when i was doing the same i feel like we're we're given a binary another binary um the age-old archetypes of the the virgin or the slut. You have to choose between the two. And in conservative circles, of course, the slut is not an option. You have to be the virgin. Um, so I always felt like I was being pulled in two directions by my different friend circles. My conservative Christian friends were all about don't have any sex because you're not married. And my non-Christian friends were like, I felt like Nobody said this to me, but I felt like the pressure was have all the sex, sleep around, go to bars, hook up, do one night stands. Um, and it was a relief to me to like the, the most liberating thing anyone has ever said to me was, if you don't want to have sex, don't have sex. And I, I really wish people would hear and know that monogamy is a valid choice. 
it works for a lot of people. Celibacy is a valid choice that works for a lot of people. You don't need a reason to not have sex. You don't need to even know why you don't want to have sex. Um, and you never owe anyone an explanation for saying no. Um, yeah, it was, I was relieved to learn in my late twenties or early thirties that it is very normal for a lot of adults in this country who are not conservative Christians, who are atheists, agnostics to go long stretches years at a time, not being sexually active. That's very normal and it's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. So the, so the, Sexual liberation includes the right to say no, not just in a certain circumstance, but for long stretches of time. I would, I totally not only back you up, but it is definitely a, a new thought in the sense of if we grew up in those environments being told, you know, first of all, you got to talk about sex all the time. Everybody wants it all of the time and you got to avoid it all the time. Um, and then there's that hyper focus on it. And then if you look at the studies and statistics about secular kids, uh, and we, we we hear in Christian circles about how sexualized our society has become, how accessible sex is and how it's everywhere. And young adults these days and young teenagers are having sex later in life and less than before, which <laughs> is, and, yeah. you know, it's not because they're in families that are telling them, discouraging them from not. In fact, I was constantly discouraged and I, from having it and I had it very young. I think all the talk about it pushed me in the other direction. Totally. Yeah. I actually had completely the opposite effect. And I look at my kids and the pressure was off and they went for long stretches without being with anyone and were happy and content and, I give credit <laughs> to being not in those environments where that was the constant yes. continuous focus where they could feel normal, just being by themselves, you know? Yeah. Said, well, they're not afraid that the rapture is going to happen before they have sex. Right. <laughs> 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 oh, that's my biggest oh, that fear is. as an adolescent. That was, yes. <laughs> it's like, it is. It's true. Cause there's God, no male don't send or female Jesus in heaven. <laughs> right? We want a genitalia. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. I think that's a good note to end things off. On. Yes, just absolutely. That and imagine it. <laughs> Don't think Thanks. about it. Don't think about it at all. You're not allowed thinking about this topic. <laughs> Thank you again, Jen. Um, so where can people find you um, on the, the interwebs? Um, what are uh, yes. you have a, like uh, social media handles, website, etc.? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, it's hard to find because you have to spell my last name and God bless you if you are able to do that. Um, but you can find me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. I'm not very active on Twitter, but if you message me there or at me, I will see it. Um, and if you search for Jen, J-E-N-N, Alan Perry, A-L-Y-N-N-P-E-R-R-I, that's, that's my handle everywhere, Jen cool. Alan Perry. And we'll we'll go ahead and put that in the show notes, and your name will be in the title, so people can figure out how to spell it um, pretty easily. But thank you again. This has been so much fun, um, and uh, we'll see you all around soon. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners, so thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. 
I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. Mm -hmm.